If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, then turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, the passage is in your bulletin, or you can find it on page 262 of the uh, Pew Bibles. So, I warned us last week that we were coming to a painful uh, transition in the book of 2 Samuel. To this point, more or less, we have been able to rejoice. There were some hard parts uh, in the early part of the book, but we've been able to rejoice as we've watched the establishment of the kingdom under David. We've seen the, the promises of God, the covenant promises of God being fulfilled. We are delighted when we see David's covenantal faithfulness in prayer, in establishing the nation, in ruling with justice and with equity. And then in last week with showing covenant mercy and loyalty to Mephibosheth. But you knew this day was coming. If, uh, if you were feeling like the bottom's going to drop out of this at some point real soon, you're right. And today the bottom drops out of it. This fall was coming. We might have liked it if uh, at the end of chapter 9 where Mephibosheth gets a seat at the king's table, uh, there was a period put there, uh, the scroll ended, and the writer said, and they all lived happily ever after. Uh, but uh, as it turns out, this isn't the end of 2 Samuel. We're not there yet, and it's certainly not the end of our Bibles and we live in a fallen, broken world. And we're going to see that on full display in our text that is before us. But the fact that it is here means that God has critical lessons for us, for the church in every age that come from uh, this debacle, this train wreck which we now read. As I do so, remember these words from uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is the living Word which is now to be read before us. Give your attention to it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Great God in heaven, this is not a dead word. It is not merely a historical word. It is a living and active word. And it is sharp, like a two-edged sword. And so today, with fear and with trembling, Spirit of God, you who authored these words, use the sword and pierce us 
for the division of joint and marrow, so that we might see, that we might understand what you have for us in this passage. Let us hear from you today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As Israel's first king, Saul was a failure. At the beginning of this book of Saul, we heard David sing the song, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Fallen in life was Saul, fallen in battle was Saul as well. The Lord rejected him, the Lord judged him. In David, in contrast, we have the man who is declared to be by God the man after God's own heart. I have found, says the Lord, a man after my own heart. And we've seen that heart of David on display since the middle of 1 Samuel and then into this book as well. But we've also seen him stumble in many ways. But our, our expectations are higher for David. Our hopes are higher for David because we know he's God's choice. We know he's the one who has the heart that God finds to be a pleasing heart. Our expectations are higher. We yearn for him. We yearn for David to remain faithful and true as a king should be, as a man of God should be. We want to jump into this text. We want to jump into this text. We want to get up on the roof. We want to put our arms around David and say, David, no. No. No, David. Remember. Remember, David. Remember the Lord. Remember the covenant. Remember, David, avert your eyes. We want to get him to do anything else. David, come. There's work to be done. There's kingly work for us to do. Come, David, let's teach your kids. Come, David, come down from the roof. Let's go fight the Ammonites together. Come, anything. David, no, we long to interrupt what we see has taken place. This is a shocking fall from the height of David's reign. It's a violation of what is most precious, most core in life. It is as irrational and as selfish as anything that we saw in the life of Saul, if not more so. It is evil. And as others have noted, in this chapter, David becomes one of the very types of men against whom he prays in the Psalms. He's become one of the men of violence who conceives violence and evil and wickedness on his bed and goes to execute it. He has become that man. And the inescapable, indeed the essential thing for us to grasp and to wrestle with is that this thing is done by a believer in the Lord. If it were done by Saul, we might look at it and say, ah, oh, that's awful, but it's Saul. If it were done by some pagan king, 
we might say that's awful. But after all, they're a pagan king. They're not a believer in the Lord. That is not the case here. You cannot do that with this text. David is a believer in the Lord. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? That's what Paul cried out in our promise of forgiveness, the end of Romans 7. And David joins him. David joins him as one who calls himself the wretched man, or at least he will join him in that. This is an awful story. And I got to tell you, we're going to be in the thick of it for several weeks. We wish it had never happened, but it did. And the fact that it happened and the fact that we have a record of it in this living word does indeed mean that God has much for us here, much to teach us here. And as one writer has said, and I agree wholeheartedly with this statement, as painful as it is, thank God that this passage is in the Bible. Thank God that it didn't get edited out. As hard as it is, as painful as it is, we need it. And we'll see that over the following weeks. So hang in there as we work through this step by shameful step. This morning, I'd like to approach the passage in this way. First of all, as a violation of covenant law, and then as a violation of covenant loyalty and love and finally, as a, com- as a violation of the covenant Lord. So we'll begin with viewing this passage as a violation of covenant law. This is the thing that is perhaps uh, most striking, most evident, most plain when we read the text that is before us. The law breaking in it, in the passage, is so brazen in the way that it is described for us. There's nothing subtle about it. It's so brazen because it's David. Now, last week, I spoke about the idea that while a covenant has an overarching quality to it, uh, and we'll get to that in just a moment. It'll be the second point here in just a moment. Covenants also typically include stipulations. Stipulations which can be more or less specific in terms of how things are spelled out. So last week, what we were looking at uh, in the covenant between Jonathan and David uh, and how that played out with Mephibosheth was this stipulation. The stipulation that Jonathan had as part of this covenant is that when the Lord had cut off all of the enemies of David, then David, don't cut off all of my offspring. Don't cut off all of my family afterwards. That was the stipulation in the covenant between Jonathan and David. But now I want us to think of the stipulations that God provided in the covenant with Moses. A covenant with Moses that was then with all of God's people as well. The stipulations that are attached to that covenant are the stipulations that are summarized for us in the Ten Commandments which we read earlier. That's why I wanted us to see them. Put before us what the stipulations of the covenant are. What is the law that the covenant has given to us? And we know 
how we are to reflect on that law, how the Old Testament reflects on that law. Blessed is somebody who takes that law and meditates on that law day and night. Here's what David says about that very law, those Ten Commandments. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's David's song. That's David's song about the, law, about the law, about the covenant law. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. They're perfect, they're sure, they're right, they're pure, they're clean, they're true and righteous altogether. David loved the law of God, the covenant law of God. But you wouldn't know that from this passage, would you? If you looked at this one, you wouldn't see it. Here he violates the law. He tramples all over the law. Dare we say it? He seems to be cold and calculating in his deliberations with respect to his disobedience. It isn't just an impulse, it's a calculation. He abuses his authority. That's a violation of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. But all who interpret the fifth commandment understand that it, what it says is with respect to authority, when you are in authority, wield it appropriately. And when you are under authority, yield to it appropriately. David abused the authority of a king that had been given to him. He murders. He commits adultery. He steals. He lies. He seeks false legal covering for his claims. He covets. He desires. And while all of those cover the second table of the law, the portion of the law that would pertain most directly to love your neighbor as yourself, we will see that this is ultimately a sin against God. Ultimately, it's a violation not only of the last six commandments, but of the first four commandments as well. Now, we've seen evidence of many of these things already building in David's life. So you can look at his life, and you can think of the time that David actually spent with the Philistines, with the enemies. He spent a lot of time around enemies. And even with people who were with him, part of his cohort of men, a lot of them were of, uh, how, we, how shall we say, a difficult past and who were problematic people. David had hung around with a lot of those type of people. And we have seen him at times, from 1 Samuel onward, to be prone to impulsive and excessive violence with his power. He's played loose with truth and with forthrightness and clarity at times. And most clearly of all, we've seen how poorly he has treated women in the way that he has taken wives and concubines unto himself, 
seeming to neglect anybody else that he had prior to that. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, I'm not going to have, read this section for us, but we read of at least six of David's wives in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read this line, this, this line that is kind of inserted in here right after some glorious victories by David, right after the Lord is establishing his kingdom and his household in Jerusalem. We read this, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him. More. He took more. More concubines and more wives. David has a history. David has a pattern. David has a habit of indulging himself with women, of indulging himself sexually. And he wants more. He's not satisfied by that. He wants more. Though what the law, what the covenant law said about this is clear. Here's from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. This was the law in anticipation of the time when Israel would have a king. This is what God said. He, that is the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor should he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. David has become that king who does that, the one against whom Samuel warned. When you get a king, this, this is what it's going to be like. He's going to be taking things. Wives, concubines, success, power, wealth. They've not only gone to his head, they've gone to his heart. They've gone to his heart and they've led him astray. And it's not just a thought process for him. He's engaged in it. He should have obeyed the law. Right? Let's just say it plainly. He should have obeyed the law. He should have been busy with other things. Whether being out at the battle, understanding what was going on at the battle, doing other things, he should have been busy and occupied with other things. He should have averted his eyes he should have, in the words that are spoken by Job, I've made a covenant with my eyes so that I may not look lustfully at a woman. He should have covenanted with his eyes. He should have, in words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he should have fled from sexual immorality. In words from James chapter 4, he should have resisted the devil and the devil would have fled from him. He should have been content he should have been content with all that God had given to him, all that God had graciously provided for him, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He wasn't content with what God had given to him. He should have honored life and marriage. He should have honored, and I know this sounds strange to say it this way, he should have honored his first wife or at least the wives that he had to this point. I know that's an odd way to say it. But he should have honored that. And what he should have honored in terms of marriage is the marriage of Uriah and Bathsheba. 
He should have protected that marriage. He should have defended that marriage that existed, that covenant that existed between those two and honored their lives as well. But he fell. God's choice, God's man, violated covenant law. And, and this is the pattern, right? We won't go into this in depth right now, at least, maybe in weeks to come, but you recognize this. This is the anatomy of sin, right? He saw, he desired, he took. It's the same as the first sin. And we can see that played out in any number of places in Scripture. He saw, he desired, and he took. But it's not just a violation of the law that was written on stone tablets, that was kept in a tent, in the holy place, in the ark, under the mercy seat that David had brought into Jerusalem and had danced over and rejoiced over. This is a violation not only of the law, but it is a violation of covenant loyalty and love as well. The violation of the law exposes the violation to the core covenant quality that should pulsate through all of the stipulations, and it is the quality of mercy. It's the one that we spent so much time looking at last week. It is the quality that is variously translated. Fidelity, troth, loyalty, kindness, mercy, steadfast love. We've got all of those words to say this quality in English. And I hate saying a Hebrew word uh, in a sermon, but I'll just say it because I can reference one word instead of saying six words every time. You, you, many of you know it's the word hesed. Okay, that's what we're talking about. The word hesed, the word mercy, loyalty, uh, and all of the other synonyms or variants that I just gave for it. The last two chapters began with an effort on the part of David to walk in that loyalty. There's no accident that this is following the structure that we've got right here before us, okay? In chapter 9, the one with Mephibosheth, it started this way. And David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake, that I may show him said, that I may show him this covenant loyalty, this covenant steadfast love? Is there anybody left? Chapter 10, verse 2. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Same word, same idea. You've got two chapters setting up this idea of David walking in this loyalty and in this faithfulness. And it is the same quality which God said would not depart. He would not take that quality from David's house. He wouldn't let it depart. He would maintain it, that quality, steadfast love to this house. David violates that quality. In one sense, we could say it this way, every sin is a violation of that quality, but we would err if we failed to see that some things cut more to the core, cut more to the heart. Some things are more heinous than other things by virtue of who does them, by virtue of what is done, by virtue of the blatantness with which they are done and what actually takes place. This is that. David destroys the loyalty of a covenant 
marriage between a husband and a wife. He takes that that existed between Bathsheba and Uriah and he tears it apart for his own ends, for his own purposes. David destroys the loyalty that exists between a king and the necessary loyalty that exists between the king and his army and his commanders that are out in the field. He destroys that loyalty, that trust that is essential to his ability to command by bringing Joab into the equation. You know why you bring Joab into the equation? Not only because Joab is the commander on the field, but because Joab's a murderer. We already know it. We know it from 2 Samuel that Joab is a murderer. And Joab gets word from the messenger who comes out, well, from Uriah himself, the hand of Uriah carrying the letter. And Joab goes, I knew it. I knew it. I looked like the bad guy. David's just as bad as I am. He's just as bad as I am. He's doing the exact same thing that I did as well. But David's violation of love and loyalty is most clearly seen in Uriah. That's what the text spends so much time on. David's violation is set in contrast to Uriah's covenantal loyalty. Right? That's what makes it so stunning. It's so stunning that Uriah in the midst of this is the one who is showing all of the fidelity and all of the troth and everything you'd want from a husband, everything you'd want from one of your field best soldiers, whatever position he particularly held on the field of battle itself. Uriah shows loyalty to his king, to his commander, to his wife, even to say, listen, I, I, I can't be with my wife right now. That's not Israel's policy. That's not the way it works. He shows loyalty to his men, his fellow warriors who are on the field. And ultimately, he shows loyalty to his God because the first thing out of his mouth when David says, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you go down to your house? Is he says, the ark of God dwells in a tent. The ark dwells in a tent. How can I do this? How can I seek comfort? How can I seek ease right now? How can I seek pleasure right now? when we're in this precarious position that exists. I'm not going to my house while the ark dwells like this and we are at war. And if that isn't enough, we easily read over this fact. At least I easily read over this fact. I don't know about you as well. But did you notice this? Uriah is a Hittite. It's said about three or four times in the, t in the text. Uriah is a Hittite, which is to say Uriah isn't Jewish. He's not ethnically Jewish. He's not blood Jewish. He's a Hittite. And by way of reminder, only because we've read this a couple of times recently, here's what God said back to Abraham or Abram. On that day, this is Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabinites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, etc. In other words, the Hittites were enemies. Uriah is a Hittite, one of the people that they were supposed to drive out of the land, unless those people turned. Those people turned from their old covenant with their old idols and turned to the Lord and covenanted with the Lord and became in covenant part of the community of Israel. A Hittite 
shows covenant loyalty and love. Uriah is one of David's 30 mighty men. He's one of the core. He's one of the best of the core. And the king tramples upon the loyalty. He tramples upon it. David violates that which is most precious and most to be cherished and treasured. And whether he does it because he was trying to cover his tracks, get Uriah in and, uh, and sleep with his wife, or perhaps because he was just plain trying to murder Uriah. Get him out of the way because he wants to take. He wants to take Bathsheba. He wants to take the son because she's now pregnant. And all of this is an effort to get him to Uriah to violate Israel's codes, and then David can execute him and get him out of the way. But in any case, whatever it is, whether it's just an effort to cover the tracks or whether it's an effort to remove him so that he can take, David tramples upon him. So David violates covenant law, covenant loyalty, and love. But what is finally, finally true is the confession from Psalm 51 that's on the front of your bulletin, and we'll spend lots more time in Psalm 51 in the weeks ahead. Against you, this is David, and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Now, David sinned against a whole lot of people. In one sense, David the king sinned against all of Israel. But it is a violation of the covenant Lord that is at the heart of all of this. In all of his impulsiveness, in all of his lust, his calculations, his deliberations, his machinations, Many have noted that David calculated a lot of things, but he forgot one thing. He forgot God. He forgot God. As he was looking at all this, as he was working through all of the plans and all of the strategies, he forgot the covenant Lord and the Lord of the covenant. And so we get this last line. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The words that he had spoken sent with the messenger back to Joab. Don't let it, Joab, don't let it bother you. These things happen. The sword devours one, now another. Don't let it displease you. Don't let it get, get you down. Be encouraged, Joab. God says, oh, no, 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 no. God is displeased by what he has seen. God doesn't take it lightly. God doesn't say, well, you know, people fall in battle. Now, God's displeased by all of this. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. So what then for us today? First of all, a reminder that you need to come back for the next couple of weeks. Uh, not that it's going to be easy, but the story continues. But two things for us today. A warning and a window. A warning and a window. Did you hear the New Testament reading today? The New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He desired the evil. It's a warning. It's an example to us. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the warning. 
take heed. If you think you stand, be cautious. James puts it this way in James 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin kills. It has brought forth death in this passage, and it will continue to bring forth death. Lots of death comes out of this passage and out of this event. So let me ask you a question. You've been listening to the Word of God, the living and active Word of God. Over the course of hearing this Word of God, has the Spirit of God poked you in your heart? At some point, some area of sin that you are countenancing in your life from which you need to flee. Maybe it's a sin that's similar to some of the ones that are described here. Maybe it's anger at someone. Maybe it's lust that is described so awfully here. Maybe it's part of the whole way of coveting and of not being content with what God has given you in this world. Or maybe it is some other sin. Perhaps other people can see it. Perhaps you think it's nicely hidden. You've gone incognito. You covered your tracks. And you're okay. Because nobody else is aware of what takes place. Beware lest your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Beware lest you become nose blind to the stench of your own sin. Flee, run, confess, get one of us to help. Grab an elder and say, I, I need your help. I just need you to pray with me. Or friend, if it's too hard for you to come to an elder, grab somebody and say, I need your help. Pray with me. God sees. The front of your bulletin, Hebrews 4, 13. This is the follow-up to the two-edged sword passage with which I opened. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Be warned. And second, a window. A window is open. I said at the beginning that something inside of us desperately wants David to stand. But in his fall, in his fall, we can see a window into our own hearts. He is among the best of us. He drank from the same rock that we drank out of. He ate of the same food that we eat. And his heart was haunted. His heart was full of dark hallways, of unexplored, hidden rooms. And so is yours, and so is mine. So is yours, and so is mine. And here's the message 
Here's the message. There's no way we can save ourselves. There's no way. There's no way. The warning is not going to be enough to save you. That's a window into the reality of our own souls. David's not someone different. He's someone like us in this case. And through that window, good news can begin to blow. Because we need one who, with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind and with all of his strength, will love the law of God, will resist the temptations to violate the law, will keep loyalty and love, and who will love the Lord. We need a covenant keeper, and David needs a covenant keeper. We need the same thing. We need someone to keep the covenant for us. And then here's the breeze that comes through the window. Acts 13, Paul says it this way. Of the man whom God said, in David I have found a man after my own heart. Here's what follows. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have been saved, or you can be saved, not by works, nor by the warning, which we must hear and is appropriate for us in our lives, but you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the window that's open into this text, because there's no other way in us. Lord, have mercy on us sinners. Be gracious to us. Forgive us in the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, through the righteous life of Jesus Christ. May it be accounted to us, credited to us, out of your grace, as righteousness as well. Lord, forgive us. Where we are harboring, sin, unconfessed, unknown perhaps to others. Help us, Lord. Help us to flee. Help us to run from it and run to you and find our welcome in you. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.